I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up after being away for a few weeks. And then later on in the pod, I'm going to sit down with Tim Alberta, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine. He recently wrote an article entitled, How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. And he and I have a fascinating discussion about what's going on with the religious right these days. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Arms folded, feet pacing the floor. It's written all over your face. The body doesn't hide our true feelings. It disregards promises made to keep the peace or just keep it to ourselves. I'm Reverend Starlette Thomas, host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. We're giving our listeners a hand when discerning body language. That's our focus in season three. The church is called the body of Christ. So what does our body language say about perennial and pressing hot button issues? What's costing us an arm and a leg? Who do we give the cold shoulder and keep at arm's length? When have we put our foot in our mouth or turned a blind eye? Why are we still sitting on our hands? Where do we toe the line? And why is the kingdom that is coming not on the tip of our tongues? In season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, we'll address these questions in eight episodes, and I hope you'll be all ears. The Raceless Gospel Podcast is looking at body language. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Episode one drops on May 5th. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Aloha, Autumn. Aloha, Mitch. It means hello and goodbye. <laughs> well, I'm saying hello this time. Did you know so, that? Uh, I did okay. know that, actually. And, and I, I also learned aloha mahalo, which means hello, thank you, or goodbye, thank you. Well, and they sort of like run it all together. Yeah. Well, you were away on one of our experiences to the Big Island in Hawaii. So tell us, how was it? Did you have the time of your life? I did not want to come home. <laughs> <laughs> I did not want to come home. It was amazing. The people who we traveled with were so diverse. Um, one of my favorite um, so, sort of one of my favorite stories that came out of Hawaii was um, a woman who found us from. She lives in Oregon and found us through Facebook oh, and wow. read our started reading our articles and said, "Who are these people? Like what <laughs> they they love Jesus, but they like." also love social justice and they're like she said you guys just like kept talking about the things that were the most pressing on my heart and so uh she sort of joined up with us there and um and saw us talking about going on these experiences and she was like well I'm gonna go she didn't know one of us not one of us That's amazing. and I mean we've been texting like still since we're back I mean she's just dear and then we have some folks who this was their their fourth trip with us uh, their fourth experience with good faith media so a pretty good blend mm-hmm. different ages different stages different activity levels and it was just so nice to get away and live in a bubble of literal rainbows and waves and volcanoes and it was what a gift it was amazing well i've been keeping up with your social media uh, not only at good faith media but as uh, your individual side as well and you were posting some amazing photos throughout the week so what was your favorite uh, experience uh, during this trip 
That is so tough because there are so <laughs> many amazing things. Um, well, top you know, two. How's the top two? My top two. Okay. I think seeing um, lava glow from a volcano. I mean, I I can remember being a little girl and like watching Reading Rainbow and LeVar Burton going to Hawaii and talking about the different kinds of lava and talking about volcanoes. So like have sort of been captivated by volcanoes since I was little and getting to see one. It was actually erupting while we were there. So we got to see the glow one night, which was just incredible. Um, and then we had a... A small group of folks who went to a a beach on the last full day there and just swimming in the ocean and just sort of having a moment where your phone was nowhere near you. That's the the beautiful thing about these experiences is you kind of have to wait till you're on Wi-Fi to do anything because right. these national parks are famously unplugged. Sure. Um, but when you're in the ocean, like you can't even be taking pictures like you. It's just you. And um, just remembering that there is still beauty in this world that has been so ugly lately and yeah. unfortunately continued to be ugly while we were gone in our little Hawaii bubble. You're absolutely right. Well, for anybody who's interested in taking one of our experience trips, uh, we still have one that is open, and that is this summer uh, to the Pacific Northwest. They can still sign up for it, right? I know time we've, is... We've a few seats left, yes. Yeah, we've got a few seats left. Uh, if you're interested in joining uh, our group to go up to the Pacific Northwest and to explore the beauty that is Oregon, uh, we would love to, to have you. So uh, go to goodfaithmedia.org, click on experience and you can find out more about that. So I'm glad you had a good time, I, Autumn. I'm told there will be orcas involved. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> and not in SeaWorld. Like, actually, in the... Okay, I'm going to talk speedy quick about... We were swimming at one point. We were kind of wading in some of the tide pools, mm -hmm. and sea turtles are just, like, swimming beside us. It wasn't like one of these, like commercial like come swim with the sea turtles no we were just in the water and the sea turtles are like hey man what's up swimming by i mean just amazing experiences and that's what you get when you travel with bruce who's our experiences guide i mean he just knows the best places to go when to make the dinner reservations to see lava glow like he will not lead you wrong so wow. absolutely worth the time and money awesome well, you mentioned that you lived in a bubble for a while, and that yeah. is true because those of us who were in the lower 48, as they call them. Uh, the have, upper 48. Well, the upper 48, that's right, in Hawaii. Um, I've been going through a lot uh, since the last time you and I uh, sat down and, and talked about what was going on in the world. Uh, that was right on the heels, I think, of the massacre in Buffalo at the shopping center. Uh, there's several great pieces at goodfaithmedia.org on that. Uh, Sarlette Thomas does a great job talking about what it meant to her as someone who grew up in ba Buffalo and her mom uh, is still a resident there, and that's where the grocery shop, or she, that's where she shops for her groceries. Uh, and then later on, we had the horrible uh, massacre again in Uvalde, Texas, uh, at the elementary school, at Rob Elementary School there in Uvalde. And then just this week, uh, here in our home state of Oklahoma, a gunman walked into St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa and uh, killed four individuals before turning the gun on himself. So, Autumn, this has got to be a watershed moment. I mean, we keep saying this year after year after year. The Sandy Hook of it all, though, Mitch. right. I mean, if, you know, we didn't do anything significant after Sandy Hook, uh, some state legislatures did uh, that were more progressive in their thinking towards 
sensible gun restrictions, uh, but a lot of the other states did not. Uh, we did nothing federally. It's time. It mm-hmm. is absolutely time. We've it's got past time. We've got a gun problem here in the United States. The church has a gun problem because it seems as though they worship gun ownership more than they follow the scriptures. Uh, because I've talked till I'm blue in the face what the scripture says about violence and the use of violence. Um, we get a we get arguments all the time. Well, Jesus says, you know, if you don't have a sword, go go buy one and, and pick one up. Well, yeah, he did say that. Uh, but then just verses uh, verses later in the Gospel of Luke, he tells those same disciples, "Put the sword down. This is not the way." And so it is very clear in Scripture, uh, as far as Jesus is concerned, how we should interact as people of faith and how we should live and treat violence and weaponry. And this ain't it. We've got to do something. No, it's it's really not it. It was so hard. Yes, I was in a bubble, and we were far away, but I was also far away from my kids. And hearing that story, you know, as it unfolded and not being able to get to my kids and knowing they were still in school for like three more days after that happened. And just that pit in your stomach of, are they safe? And the answer is no, they're absolutely not safe. No, they're they're not. not safe. None of us are. Yeah. You know, both of my boys are adults now. Uh, one's out of college. One is uh, going into his senior year in college. But, you know, there was a time in high school where my youngest, uh, they went into a lockdown and he was actually outside throwing some trash away for a teacher and he couldn't get inside and he didn't know what was going on. And he was, I mean, it really freaked him out. It was terrifying for him. Uh, because they were on lockdown and he was stuck outside and he didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, it's not only the trauma of each one of these events. I mean, the loss of life is the ultimate uh, tragedy in any of these. But the trauma that we are putting these kids through almost on a weekly basis as they have to do, uh, you know, intruder uh drills now, um, you know, and, and they always have to be constantly aware and constantly on edge. What if a gunman walks into my school and begins mm-hmm. to shoot? Uh, we, we're, we are, we are causing so much trauma to this generation of kids. We have to do something about it. And it is not having a one door policy as some oh senators. My gosh. Have. The fire marshal. Uh, no, like, no, that's not, it's not arming teachers. It's not arming um, teachers. I mean, good I mean night. we I don't even teacher pay teachers friend. enough to educate. I mean, what? Are we no. <laughs> well, and I have, you know, I come from a family of educators. I also went to school to be an educator. So a lot of my, you know, college friends and stuff are teachers. So they're filming my news feed and they're saying things like you won't even let us select our own library books you won't even let us control our own thermostats and you want to arm us yep please please make it make sense and my dear mother jennifer randall oh yeah who's a saint i love truly she I've met you and your brother. She's a saint. Be- hey, <laughs> she is a wonderful, <laughs> beautiful human being. And she was a public educator for over three decades, a principal for uh, half of that time. And I love her dearly. I don't want Jennifer Randall having a firearm in a situation like that. I just, no. I just and she doesn't I, want one either. <laughs> no, I used to teach school and I cannot imagine 
No. And the other, like, how do you keep it safe? How do right. you, and, and kids, okay, here's, I mean, all the things, all, all the things. things, paper cutters, you know, paper cutters yeah. are about as violent as we need in the classroom. And even that I never had in mind because right. I could just see a little finger getting in there and we've got to keep our kids safe. Yeah. Um, and another and, talking point that we're seeing emerge from this, uh, especially from the right, is that this is a mental health issue, you know, oh and here's gosh. the deal. I agree that we've got a mental health issue in this country. A lot of the problems stem from those same individuals who have cut mental health programming time and time again. Governor Abbott really wanted to pin the Uvalde shooting on mental health. There's been no indication whatsoever that this individual had mental health issues uh, in the past, but nonetheless, they attempted to do so. But in, in, in that same line, this governor also, just months prior to this event, cut state funding for mental health care. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it just, it's just asinine. Um, yes, we have a mental health issue in this country. But we so need to do be doing every some- other country. Exactly. Exactly. Thank I you. Mean, we, don't, we don't own the rights to mental health issues. We only own the rights to our guns. Right. Exactly. And... This only happens in America. Yes, there's an occasional shooting in other countries, but those are so few and far between. And when they do happen, such as in New Zealand or in Canada, those governments actually do something about it. Yeah, uh, but yep. not here in America. It's just it's like it's a it's a money problem. Yeah, it's a money issue. It's a lobbyist money NRA issue. And it's a, that yeah. and it's it's a patriarchal issue. I mean, I, I just I just think people think that they not only have a right to guns, even though what the first or what the second amendment actually says, it is uh, the local militias have the right to bear arms. Uh, and I'm not against gun gun ownership. There's a lot of great gun owners out there that you know do some wonderful things and live their lives, and it's it's just it's fantastic. But at the same time, there's no reason to have assault rifles in the public domain. Nope. None. No. Zero. No. And we've got to do something. Red flag laws uh, in this country need to be established. Uh, just this whole mask, this toxic masculinity that somehow we look tough or we're going to be the new Minutemen or, you know, just the new militia for this age. It's just, it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's just like, you got a problem with your masculinity. You're trying to overcompensate for your lack of being a, you know, being a true human being. And uh, it's just, it's just infuriating to me. So I well, hope it's a, it's a guard against having to see your fellow human. Right. You know, I've got this barrier between me and you, and I don't have to see you. I'm just going to shoot you in the face. Yeah. It's that's the American mentality that it's it's just I'm going to protect me and mine. Yeah. You know, and, and where like, in the Bible does it ever talk about me and mine? Yeah. Where? And it, and it seems like especially with all these stand your ground laws and uh we know what's going on or we know evidence about what's gone on with uh, policing in this country. All you have to say is that I felt threatened and you're justified in killing somebody. How do you prove that? How do you prove that you were truly threatened? Um, and it just, I mean, we had a case here in Norman, Oklahoma, just uh, several weeks ago where a man was shot uh, by a, an individual in the car and the individual in the car said that they Felt threatened. Well, there's really no evidence of that, of, of what level of threat that the person felt at. Was there a confrontation? Yeah, probably. But at what, at what point does that 
need to turn lethal. And the DA here did not uh, pursue any kind of charges because the man said he felt threatened. And so it's, I, I just, we've got a, we've got a huge problem we've got to deal with. Um, yep. But America has been notorious for just kicking the can down the road uh, when it comes to issues like this. We just don't want to deal with them. We just want to mm-hmm. stay in our, u- mm-hmm. our so-called utopia and uh, continue to exist, but uh, no longer. Well, I, I very briefly want to talk to you about people wrapping God up in this because I see a lot of people saying things like, well, if America would just return to church, if we'd bring prayer back into school, you know, if we would just return to God, this would go away. Or talking about how the breakdown of the nuclear family is the reason that we're having all of this happen. And I, I'm just here to say that... I, in my opinion, I don't think God wants to be our scapegoat for this. And us partnering religion with public education is not going to, it is also not going to solve our gun issue. That's not the problem. No, we do not. Uh, And the real issue we have is that Christian nationalism is ingrained into this culture. And especially those people who find themselves in positions of privilege think their way of life, their ideology, uh, their economic status is a God-given right, and that nobody should be able to jeopardize that whatsoever, and that everybody should stay in their own lane in this country. And it's just it's just absolutely asinine uh, to try to tie God into this debate. I mean, if you're going to tie God into this, I mean, let's really tie uh, the person that we call Lord uh, into this conversation, and that's Jesus. And I already said that mm-hmm. a moment ago. You cannot hold a, a a gun advocacy position in this country uh, and call yourself a follower of Jesus. I'm just I'm that uh, that adamant about it uh, because Jesus was very clear when it came to rising up and using violence uh, to solve issues. So. Um, I just I'm ready I'm ready for a big change. I hope it's coming. There is a bipartisan uh, effort taking place in the Senate right now. Um, I have a little glimmer of hope, but you know how these things go. Uh, they could just talk it to death, and nothing ends up happening. It just it's all mm-hmm. semantics and and imagery. Um, mm-hmm. So, but uh, we've got to do something, folks, because uh, we're, we're we are we are doing our children an injustice. By just closing our eyes again. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and time again, time and time again, the gun was obtained legally. Right. Yeah, legally. So the laws need to change. Yep. The Absol- end. The end. Absolutely. Well, Autumn, uh, while you're away in Hawaii enjoying your best life, uh, I sat down with Tim Alberta. Tim is a staff writer for The Atlantic. Uh, He used to be the chief political correspondent for Politico. Uh, He recently wrote an article in May entitled How Politics Poison the Evangelical Church. And he sat down with some of these religious right leaders and interviewed them and talked to them about their beliefs and what they were touting from the pulpit. And uh, it was a very, very interesting interview. It's a great article. I encourage you to go read it in The Atlantic uh, right after you listen to this interview as I sat down with Tim Alberta. Stay tuned. Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers 
led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got Tim Alberta with us. He is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, and staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine. He formerly served as chief political correspondent for Politico. In 2019, he published the critically acclaimed book, American Carnage, On the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump. Earlier this month, on May 10th, Tim published an article in The Atlantic entitled, How Politics Poison the Evangelical Church. He's here with us today to discuss that article and his observations regarding faith and politics. Tim, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Mitch, thank you for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Well, Tim, before we get into some of the specifics about the article, first of all, congratulations, uh, not only on the article, uh, you know, I've, I've worked through it a number of times, the interviews were great, uh, the observations that you made were just accurate, uh, knowing, because I grew up in the evangelical church, and so, you know, everything that was in the article, I was just saying, yeah, 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 that's right, yeah, I've seen it, I've heard it. But before we get into those specifics, let me just ask you, can you describe to our listeners, what prompted you to research and write this? article? Well, I too grew up in the evangelical church. I am a PK. Um, Dad was a uh, minister in the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and uh, which is a, a smaller denomination. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, pretty, pretty conservative theologically, culturally, politically, um, uh, very white, uh, certainly my home church in Brighton, Michigan, uh, very white, almost exclusively white. And, uh, and, and so that was sort of the environment that I was steeped in growing up. Uh, my mother worked at the church also. And, uh, so I sort of physically grew up in the church. I, you know, I like spent my nights and summer vacations there, uh, you know, playing hide and seek. And as I got older, you know, playing tag and stuff, I, I actually worked at the church as a janitor when I was going to community college. So uh, I, I was, uh, I was very much marinating in church culture, in church life, um, for, for the entirety of my upbringing. And I had just really, long before I got into political journalism, long before I started writing professionally about the influence of American evangelicalism uh, in the political space. I just had questions for myself about what I was seeing in the church and um, and 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 some of the some of the trade-offs that were being made, some of the some of the uh, some of the sacrifices that were apparent, uh, particularly when it came to you know decisions uh, around politics and around culture and and what to engage with and what not to engage with and why and what the stakes were and. There, there were just things that had been unresolved in my mind and, and questions that were sort of um, looming larger and larger the older I got and, and the more involved I, certainly the more involved that I became with uh, covering politics as a profession. And so the time was was right, particularly uh, given the fact that uh, I think over the last four or five years, as I write about in the piece, this confluence of events, uh, you know, everything from, you know, Me Too and, and uh and questions of sexual abuse and, and cover-ups and accountability to, you know, George Floyd and, and, and uh, racism and racial reconciliation, and then COVID and masks and vaccines and shutdowns of churches. And then, of course, Trump as sort of the backdrop to all of it and the divides in the church. Uh, it just felt like 
the, the, the turmoil was really intensifying and that right. the time was right to do this. You know, it's interesting. We've interviewed a lot of journalists uh, over the last several years since launching this podcast. And all of our journalists and, and some of our pastors who write for us have similar stories of growing up in the evangelical church and, you know, witnessing firsthand what what has transpired in the evolution of evangelicalism to the point of where it is today. And so, you know, everything you just said really resonates with me as, as an inspiration to research this and, and write about it uh, in a professional format. So let's go to the, go to the article in The Atlantic, uh, May 10th, How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. During your research for the article, you interview three pastors in their congregations that made it into the article. I'm sure you probably talked to others along the way as well. But the three pastors in their congregations are Pastor Bill Boland of Floodgate Church in Brighton, Michigan, Pastor Ken Brown of Community Bible Church in Trenton, Michigan, and Pastor Greg Locke of Vision Bible Church in Wilson County, Tennessee. So in this research that you did in preparing for the article, here's the question. Because a lot of times, for those of us who have come out of evangelicalism, and for me in particular, who now really denounce a lot of their theological and political activity, I think sometimes we forget about their humanity. And so when you sat down with these pastors in their congregations, let me ask you this. What similarities and differences did you notice between the three pastors and their congregations? Sure. Well, it's yeah. There, there's a there's a quite a spectrum here. Um, well, let's start with the similarities. What similarities did you find? Yeah. Well, I think uh, even in even in in exploring a church like uh, Global Vision out in Tennessee, where Greg Locke is the pastor, uh, you know, I had a long conversation with with Greg Locke, and. You know, there were parts of that conversation that would be totally normal, to, you know, totally recognizable, to, totally uh, consistent with conversations you might have with any other Christian pastor, uh, any other, you know, uh, certainly an evangelical pastor. Um, just about, you know, uh, about the the role that, uh, you know, faith ha- has played in his sort of... Um, in his personal journey and, and, uh, why he's doing what he's doing and why he believes in what he's doing. And, um, and that's without even getting into any of the specifics, uh, politically or theologically or otherwise, just sort of testimonial content that would feel consistent with. And so that was, you know, and, and that was the experience, um, at the other churches as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to your point with the, um, yeah, I mean, I think I quote at the end of the day four or five pastors in the piece, but but you know that's drawn from dozens and dozens sure, of sure. interviews right, with right, pastors right. in different places, and and I think that the similarities there are at the end of the day, um, I, I do think, and and maybe uh, maybe this is just my wanting to give the benefit of the doubt to anybody uh, who uh, who works in the clergy, but I, at the end of the day, I, I think the similarities all these guys you know, profess to love Jesus and, and, uh, they think that they're doing what is, what is right by him and by their, by their congregants, by their communities. And obviously, uh, I can and do disagree with the approach in in some instances, but I think the similarity is, uh, I think, I think these guys do have more in common than one might suspect 
right. uh, j- just from sort of uh, looking at the pictures or, or kind of reading the takeaways. Uh, and then, you know, as far as differences, you know, as you know, there's just, there's such a spectrum now uh, when we think about, uh, e- even within the white evangelical church, uh, I was just at a church last night in Ohio, in fact, where um, doing some additional reporting where uh, you have people in the same pews. You've got uh, guys who are wearing suits and ties and who are very buttoned up. And he's sitting two or three uh, people away from a guy who's wearing an American flag shirt with an eagle holding the Constitution. And, you know, those those two guys are in the same pews. They're worshiping together. Right. But uh, chatting with them afterwards, they are completely different human beings. And sure. they've got they've got uh, remarkably different views on on the intersection of, of faith and, and politics and, and what, what brought them to church on this Monday night for this event that I was attending. So you know, the, the, the differences are vast, mm-hmm. but one, uh, one would like to think that, uh, that at least one core similarity one, 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 one core commonality does exist, and, and that's Jesus. You know, and that's fascinating because, you know, I've talked to a lot of uh, fundamentalist uh, right-wing evangelicals who tout a lot of um, conspiracy theories and theological positions that I would deeply disagree with. But when you talk about life, when you talk about, you know, marriage and you talk about family and you talk about, you know, just paying the bills and what's going on in their neighborhood, I mean, there is a human connectivity there uh, that I think oftentimes we forget about. And so this leads into the next question, because these are human beings. They're flesh and blood, just like you and I are, but they are susceptible to these conspiracy theories and they advocate for such extreme causes what do you think in your time with these individuals and their congregations opens them up to be so accepting of these conspiracy theories and advocating for such extreme measures? It's a great question and something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and, and, and asking these individuals about. Um, you know, in fact, I had uh, one of the pastors, Ken Brown, who's a, sort of a small C conservative, uh, but but politically uh, very buttoned up, and and has really, as I described in the piece, really made an effort to sort of rein in uh, his his congregation and and make sure that he's keeping conspiracies and 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 disinformation out of the church because he views he views them as as a serious threat to the mission uh, of the church. You know, Ken said to me at one point, he said. I've had conversations with some leaders in the church where we've kind of wondered aloud to one another, is there something about us as believers in in Christ uh, that makes us more susceptible to conspiracy theories? In other words, one might study us from the outside and say, well, these guys believe that the son of a carpenter in the Middle East 2,000 years ago uh, hung from a tree and then pushed a boulder away and rose from the dead three days later, uh, and then ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of, of, of the creator of the heavens and earth. Of course they believe in <laughs> human on, right? Yeah. right? Of, of course sure. they believe the election was stolen. Of course they're the, so, and that's an interesting question. Um, and, and I'm not, I, I, I personally am not, um, terribly well appointed to, uh, get into, you know, some of the, uh, epistemological distinctions here 
but but I see the point that he was raising, and frankly, it's a conversation I've had with other pastors. I would I would I would attack it slightly differently, though. I would attack the question slightly differently, Mitch. I think in all of my reporting, the common thread that that I come back to time and again in so many of these conversations with folks is is a sense of America in decline, America under siege, America uh, this 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 blessed and special, exceptional country that, that has been, uh, that has had God's hand on it from the beginning, that it is slipping away. And I, I, I emphasize that point because once someone believes that the nation is slipping away and that, um, and that an attack on the nation is an attack on God and vice versa, I do believe that that sort of opens the door to more radical thinking, uh, both both politically and theologically. Frankly, um, you know, I, I, I talk to a couple of people in the piece who give voice to that uh, th- this idea that there's no longer a meaningful distinction between the political and the spiritual; that it's all wrapped up in the same warfare. Mm-hmm. And if you if you get to that place, which trust me, I've talked with an awful lot of folks. I'm sure you have as well, who are in that place. I think once you're there. It's really not much of a leap to buy into any of these conspiracies, uh, you know, that the election was stolen or, or that the vaccine is uh, is designed to control the population or any of these things. I mean, it's just it's it's not a big leap at that point. So, Tim, let's follow up on that, because, you know, we do hear that a lot, that the country uh, is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, it's in severe decline, morally, spiritually. Um, but here's. Here's reality. That argument has been made for 200 years now. Each error, especially from the right-wing populace of the country, always argues that the country is heading in the wrong direction or in decline, which often translates into, I'm losing power and influence and wealth because of the advancement of other other people in the world. Um Again, we've heard it since the beginning of this country. Is there anything different specifically about this current error and this current argument that delineates it from those other moments in history where we have heard make Mer- make America great again or take your country back or you know the country's in severe decline spiritually? Is there something because to be honest with you, I can't put my finger on it. But this feels a lot different than these past moments in recent history. So I'll give you two different answers here. I'll give you my perspective on it, and then I'll try to channel the perspective of a lot of folks I've had this conversation with. So my own perspective is that it does feel different, uh, sort of objectively uh, and institutionally it feels different because our institutions are, in fact, sort of in in serious decline. And... uh, you know, the decades-long downward trajectory of the public's confidence in everything from the institution of the church to the institution of law enforcement, uh, the financial system, Congress, the media, don't get me started, um, you know, all the way up and down the line, Major League Baseball, right? We don't, we don't believe in anything anymore. We don't believe that the people in charge have our best interests in mind. And that is toxic to... It is toxic to... A, to, to an experiment in self-government like ours. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we cease to believe that the people 
who should be looking out for us are in fact looking out for us. Uh, it's, it's, it's a disease that spreads. And I think we're seeing that. And the church is just, you know, one of many examples where you can see uh, folks turning on one another and, and, and uh, refusing uh, to, uh, to buy in anymore to, to this, to this belief uh, that, that things are going to be okay. This idea that, oh, it's cyclical, we're America, we've been through this before, we'll, be, we'll, we'll go through it again, and we ultimately pull through, um, people aren't buying that mm-hmm. like they used to. And I'm not sure that I'm buying it, frankly, so I can, I can um, appreciate where they're coming from. Now, to the second part is I would say that in the conversations I have with, with a lot of individuals, when you say, well, what is different about this moment? I think that they would make the case that you can sort of uh, quantify and qualify the country's moral decline, as you as you put it uh, a, m- a moment ago, and they would point to everything from uh, from you know pornography consumption to uh, you know same sex marriage being legalized to abortion rates to um, you know uh, the the uh, the public education system indoctrinating children. And I mean, they would, they could sort of rattle off the greatest hits of of the culture wars and say, not only are we losing all of these culture wars, but we are, we have sort of reached a place where our, our backs are against the wall, where there's, there's really no fighting leverage to be had. And, and I think that's what feels different to them. As I write about in the piece, there was there, even during the heyday of the moral majority, when we were going to hell in a handbasket, I think there was actually a, a, a significant amount of optimism that the fight could still be turned around and that, and, that, and that righteousness could still prevail. I think what's different now, Mitch, in a lot of these conversations, as I, as I say in the piece, there is a fatalism that, that underpins a lot of these conversations. In other words, a lot of folks believe that the fight is lost, that it, that, that, that it can't be turned around anymore, and that now it's just sort of this, well, this is our Alamo moment for a lot of evangelicals. And that to me does feel very different. Yeah. You know, the way, you know, just assessing that and, and reading the piece and, and, you know, I really appreciated Kim Brown. I mean, I thought he was, he's making a good faith effort to, to try to combat conspiracy theories, but uh, hearing the other pastors that you interviewed, uh, especially Bolin and Locke, you know, I was just reminded that, it's almost as though they are fighting tooth and nail to keep control of the meta narrative and the specific narrative of their existence. And that those two are not delineated because as the narrative changes, as they become less dominant in culture, in politics, in their communities, the less control they feel like they have and the lesser they feel as an individual. And it's hard to convince them otherwise, just because somebody else, you know, now has more rights than they did before, doesn't mean that they have any less rights. Uh, and and so, it, for me, it culminated on January sixth, obviously of of twenty twenty one, and just all of a sudden, all of this rhetoric that I have heard all of my life from pastors such as you interviewed for the piece, all of a sudden, that rhetoric turned into physical action. 
And we saw a storming of the Capitol, primarily by Christian nationalism that was fueled by uh, evangelical theology and politics. And it was like, oh, they not only feel this and are talking about it, now they are ready to act. Now, what was interesting about that, Tim, is that that came from the white church. The black church has been saying, yeah, we've been feeling the sting of this rhetoric all of our lives uh, through generation upon generation. But it just seems like all of a sudden we are at this point in history where everything is culminating together, and and it's frightening. And, and, and in fact, you know, I was reading a book just recently about um, the politics of the last couple of years, and the author was interviewing members of the Republican Party who were frightened because some of their colleagues are outwardly talking about civil war now. Uh, and it's just, it's just really frightening. So I guess my next question for you is this. What do you think the end game is for these pastors? Uh, we know they're doing this out of deep theological convictions. And even though we disagree with them, they have their convictions. But what are they hoping to achieve? And it's kind of like the question, what does make America great again mean? What period of time are we talking about uh, in the again? Um, what, is their, what is their ultimate goal? You know, I think it, it, it follows from uh, the answer I gave uh, a moment ago in talking about the decline of America and, and, and sort of the... Uh, the, the inexorable trajectory that we find ourselves on in, in, in the view of some of these folks. So I, I realize that they, uh, let me rephrase that. I realize that evangelicals make this prognosis of what is going on in the country. And a lot of that, that's what drives them. But what is their ultimate goal? Is it to take control of government? Is it to purge the country of liberals, uh, of pagans? What are they after? Yeah, no, I, I think that um, if you if, if you are uh, going to put yourself in their shoes and if you are going to subscribe to the idea uh, of America in sort of terminal decline and that the trajectory cannot be bent back in the other direction and that uh, some of these sort of culture wars are in fact lost then you are going to start thinking about uh, your, sort of a survivalist mode, more or less. I, so no, I don't think it's about uh, a purge. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's about going on offense. I think it's about uh, almost bunkering down a little bit and trying to carve out a space in which you can exist the way that you want to exist and you can worship the way that you want to worship and that you can, you can build out, continue to build out, continue to grow a community of like-minded individuals that can, that can sort of occupy a space that is untouched by the, uh, the, the, the secularization of the culture all around you. In other words, I think I, my sense from a lot of these conversations is that a, for many of these folks, uh, it, it really, it really is less about going on offense at this point and a little bit more about, um, 
sort of digging their trenches because they feel like uh, they feel like the forces of liberal secular America are coming for them, mm-hmm. and that's and I I, I want to be clear that um, to the extent that violent and and militaristic rhetoric animates parts of this movement it is in my experience anyway it is almost entirely defensive it is this idea that they don't want to have to do this but they might have to at some point because people are coming for them so that's an answer that uh may surprise some people but again i can only i'm a reporter i'm not a you know social scientist i'm not a pollster and i'm not a um, certainly not a psychic but based on all of my reporting what I find time and time again is that um, the end game in the eyes of, uh, of I think, a significant number of the people who we're talking about here, uh, sort of right-wing white evangelicals uh, who have some sort of apocalyptic notions of the end of America, um, it, it's, it really does t- seem to focus their end game around ideas of uh, sort of established safe havens mm-hmm. where big bad government and big bad secular culture can't touch them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And that's, you know, and that's what we hear here at Good Faith Media is that it seems as though there is a creation of a narrative. If there's elements of truth to it, or if there's not elements of truth to it, that has been created in the mindset of some evangelicals that there's this mythological big bad wolf coming after them to destroy them and their way of life. And therefore, they've got to do everything in their power to fight against that mythology. So, you know, I hear what you're saying. Um, now, what surprised you when you sat down with these pastors? What was, was there one moment during your research and interviews that just really surprised you uh, after talking to these folks? Well, y- yeah, there were there were a few. I mean, um, uh, I had a long conversation, as I think I mentioned earlier, with Greg Locke, who seems like almost on a weekly basis is making national news headlines for, converse, for, for, for comments he's making about just recently, you ain't seen an insurrection yet. A uh, month or two before that, it was, uh, you know, saying that he found witches in his congregation, uh, that, you know, during an exorcism, a demon told him about witches in his congregation. Before that, they were having a bonfire of Harry Potter books to try and destroy the occult. I mean, he's he's uh, he, he's got a talent for keeping himself uh, in the bloodstream. I was really surprised that in a lengthy conversation with Greg Locke, um, he was quite introspective, quite reflective on some things that uh, he felt like, in hindsight, that he'd done wrong, that he'd uh, been too reactionary, that he'd been too political, that he'd uh, that he hadn't thought certain things through and that he worried that it was uh, harming the gospel and, and his ability to evangelize. I was sort of floored by uh, some of the comments he made to me in, in that respect. Um, so that's one example. You know, I had some encounters, some conversations, some experiences with pastors in different parts of the country that never made, uh, never made the cut for the piece, just because there's only so much you can write. It was already sure. 10,000 words. And I, 
you you just sort of have to start cutting somewhere. And so I did a year's worth of reporting for the piece. And, and I'll tell you that some of the most just jaw-dropping conversations I had with pastors were, were the ones where they would tell me about experiences in their church over the last couple of years, whether it was uh, in, in reaction to the church co- closing because of COVID-19 or because of, uh, you know, the pastor... Uh, handing the pulpit over to a black colleague in the wake of George Floyd's murder or uh, some other, uh, some other kind of uh, cultural touchstone moment where people in their church who'd been there for 15, 20, 25 years, uh, close personal friends, in some cases, people who'd been elders at the church uh, basically formed lynch mobs and came after the pastor and didn't do it in, I mean, listen, you and I both know that churches have their own sort of political and governance right. struggles all the time. And that's nothing new uh, that, you know, just read the New Testament. But some of these anecdotes were genuinely astonishing. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, physical intimidation. We're talking about psychological warfare. We're talking about uh, really nasty vitriolic campaigns waged over social media some of them employing Photoshop to uh, to 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 try and intimidate. Right. Or, yeah, there's uh, a story about that in the in the article. Uh, yeah, I mean, just 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 really things that would things that would leave you. Uh, but let me put it this way, uh, Mitch: the sort of behavior that if you saw it in a corporate setting would leave you chilled. And you think, wow, what well, these? This is horrible behavior. How could you treat another person this way? Uh, much less in a church setting, right? And I got to say, that's what surprised me. And it shouldn't have, because again, I, I'd grown up in, in, in this movement and I'd seen some of it for myself. And I guess I just didn't suspect that it was happening at the scale uh, that in fact it is happening. So, so just sitting there listening, you describe all of this stuff um, and, and even in, in your previous answers to the questions, something comes to mind and I just want to just flat out ask you, is this white supremacy 2.0? Because everything you described to me resonates with what happened in the South during Jim Crow towards the African-American community. But now it is expanded to not only uh, the black community, but also to uh, secular secularism, uh, Democrats, liberals, progressives, LGBT, people from the LGBTQI community. Um, it seems like white supremacy has gotten a booster, so to speak, and has repackaged itself. And this is what we've got because it's, it's this intimidation. It's the supremacy of culture and religion and that they're in this eternal battle uh, to, to, to keep up their values and morals. And they are very specific in how they articulate that. But at the end of the game, it's for them to stay supreme in the culture and to everybody else be subservient to their way of life. Well, let me give you a nuanced answer. You know, I'm constantly reminding myself in doing this reporting that we're talking about, you know, with, with white evangelicals, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of people. Mm -hmm. Right. And so certainly they are not a monolith. 
certainly there is real diversity of views uh, theologically and politically and otherwise. Now, it might not be, you know, a, a vast diversity, but generally, I, I don't think generalizations are helpful. I will say that there's no question that when you when you dig into the mentality that is shared by some of the folks who are really on the front lines of this and really the most active and, and, and the most aggressive, that there is a sort of supremacist uh, mindset. Uh, and, and it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's cultural, it's political, it's uh, theological. I think to some extent it's, it's racial for sure. Um, again, these things are hard to quantify. I, what I'll say though, is that those folks on the front lines are so oftentimes um, punching above their weight. What I mean by that is uh, in, in all of the anecdotes that I was uh, conveying just a moment ago, without fail, every single time when I'd be having this conversation with one of these pastors, I'd say, so how many people are we talking about here? You know, these guys who sort of formed a lynch mob and came after you and, and made things horrible inside your church, and in some cases succeeded in driving you or driving other people out of the church. How many people are we talking about? And without fail, the answer would be seven or eight, mm -hmm. nine or 10, mm -hmm. right? And oftentimes this is in a church of three or four or 500. Wow. Which makes you, it, it makes you think, two things. Number one makes you think, wow, uh, you know, that's, that's real, that's real minority power. That that's, that's an ability of those loudest voices to really dominate the conversation to get what they want. But then secondly, it makes you realize, well, just, just how much of a minority are they? Mm -hmm. Because where, if the other, if the other folks are so opposed to what they're doing, then why aren't they doing something about it? Right. Mm -hmm. So I do think they're a minority. But again, how do you quantify it? How do you measure it? I don't know the answer. And I think that that has been the source of a lot of dissatisfaction and, and, and disillusionment and, and, frankly, heartbreak for a lot of these pastors who have asked themselves that same question. Right. If this is just seven or eight people in my congregation who are sort of off the reservation and who have decided to wage war against me, because I said something from the pulpit they didn't like, or I invited a guest speaker who challenged their political assumptions, right? If it's just these six or seven or eight people in the congregation doing this, but I've been here faithfully serving for a decade or two, uh, and all of these other folks know me and know my heart and know my family and, and appreciate the work I do, why aren't they standing up for me? Why aren't they pushing back more forcefully against yeah. these others? Sure. Um, sure. And that's and that's where things really, I think, get get tragic at a, at a certain level for a lot of the pastors involved. Right. So we always like to enter or in these interviews with trying to find some kind of hope in these very difficult topics that we discuss. And reading your piece uh, in the article in the Atlantic, how politics poisoned the evangelical church, I found it in Pastor Brown. He and I would probably disagree on a lot of theological points and political points. But I think he's making a good faith effort to bring some sensibility and calmness to his congregation. Is, 
is there hope out there, Tim? I mean, you've interviewed some of these controversial pastors, and you've heard a lot of their rhetoric and, uh, and inside their congregations and what's going on. Where is the hope that you see? Or is there hope, I guess I should say? Well, I listen, uh, I mentioned in the piece early on, uh, you know, the first first. Bible verse I ever memorized, the first passage of scripture I ever memorized as a kid was 2 Corinthians 4.18. Um, you know, we, we, we set our sights not on what we can see, but on what we can't see. Um, because what we can see is temporary and what we can't see is eternal. And it's such a, it's such a as a writer, I just so appreciate the, the, the turn of phrase there. We set our sights on what we can't see, right? It's an oxymoron. Right. But it's, it's so profound and so beautiful. And I, so I think the hope is in what we can't see. If, if, if I were to just obsess over everything I can see inside these churches uh, and, and in the culture more broadly, uh, in the way in which uh, American evangelicalism is sort of driving so much of our cultural and political polarization, uh, then I would feel hopeless. But if I, if I remind myself daily, which I try to do, that uh, I'm supposed to be setting my sights on what I can't see, uh, then there's uh, there's a lot of hope. And, and the hope is that Jesus is still on the throne and that he loves me despite the fact that I'm uh, uh, the worst sinner of all and, and that I don't deserve it and that uh, I'm straying from the path every day and fighting to get back on it and uh, and that he's walking beside me the same way that he's walking beside a lot of these other uh, terribly flawed individuals. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the hope. There's always hope. It's just hard to find when your when your eyes aren't fixed on the right thing. That's that's great. What a great great answer. Thank you so much for giving us some hope. Tim Alberta, he is a staff writer for the Atlantic. His latest article is the American or I'm sorry, his latest article is how politics poison the evangelical church. His most recent book is American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. Tim, it has been a joy having you with us today. We want to encourage everybody to subscribe to the Atlantic. You can read much more of uh, Tim uh, in the Atlantic. He's a great writer, great author. Uh, so make certain uh, you subscribe and, and and give him a read. But before we let you go, Tim, we've got one question that we ask every one of our guests. Uh, most times, Autumn, my co-host, uh, asks this question, but she is suffering for Jesus in Hawaii right now. And so I get the distinct pleasure of answering this. At Good Faith Media, our tagline is, there is more to tell. So in light of everything we talked about here today, Tim, Alberta, what is your more to tell? Boy, uh, you know, after the tone and tenor of this conversation, uh, I, dare I get into sports uh, where, <laughs> where, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong diehard Detroit sports fan. And uh, these are the dark days, the dark ages for Detroit sports. So that, that might be the only subject matter that's more depressing than <laughs> you know, the American church. I'm a, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Red Sox fan, so we're just hovering below 500 right now. But we won five in a row, so yeah, we well, got that. You've got, you've got some hardware from recent years to show for, for all of your uh, your efforts. Um, you know, more to tell, I, I would say that uh, we, should, we should keep a close eye on what's happening in this political environment. 
this is a very strange midterm election cycle shaping up. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a political junkie and I've tried to spread my wings a bit at the Atlantic and not just write about politics anymore and uh, had some success doing so. But I'm sort of dialing back in now, given that we're approaching this, this midterm election in November. And you've got all of these, these incredible headwinds facing the Democratic Party, uh, you know, everything from inflation to uh, to immigration to crime and just the fundamentals of a midterm election president's uh, two years in and his party is going to suffer because of it. We see that historically. Uh, everything imaginable is working against the Democratic Party. And yet you have Republicans in some states that are really attempting to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory here and are nominating some individuals who are, in many cases, uh, they're going to test whether they are electable, even under the best of circumstances. Uh, folks who are conspiracy theorists, folks who are election uh, fraudsters, uh, folks who are being very open about their intention to use their office to subvert democratic norms in this country. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see this sort of this collision of forces. Uh, on the one hand, uh, a democratic party that is that is really hemorrhaging uh, support uh, and 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 facing, uh, as I said, just sort of uh, in, in many ways, historic headwinds in this election cycle, uh, pitted against a Republican Party that seems intent on testing uh, this this proposition of, of just how far to the right somebody can be and still win a general election come November. So that's it's just a fascinating thing to keep an eye on. I'd encourage everybody to to tune in. Stay engaged, folks. Uh, you heard it from Tim Alberta. Uh, make certain you educate yourself uh, because there is an important election. No matter how you vote, make sure you get out and vote and uh, vote your conscience and uh, continue the political dialogue. I mean, that's what this country is about, is about dialogue and hopefully trying to find some compromise so that we can move the country forward. And so, uh, Tim, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, hopefully next week, Autumn's going to be back from Hawaii and uh, talking uh, right here at Good Faith Weekly. And until then, keep living good faith. <laughs>